Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, January 22nd, we're studying Mark chapter 2, verse 23 through chapter 3, verse 6. The conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees and his other opponents quickly escalates as Jesus and his disciples do things on the Sabbath that the religious leaders consider unlawful. Yet Jesus' teaching and deeds reveal him in truth to be the Lord of the Sabbath. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us a regular guest, Pastor David Appold. Pastor Appold serves at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Paducah, Kentucky. Pastor Appold, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thanks for having me on. Looking forward to it. Let's talk context, Pastor Appold. We're near the we're going to cover the end of chapter two, beginning of chapter three today. Where have we been in Mark so far? What do we need to know going into this text? Well, the um, introduction to Jesus, he, he finds himself in controversy pretty quickly. So chapter one, you get, I think, a couple of, are there miracles there? I think there's a couple of miracles and some teaching going on, um, which draws some, you know, people are impressed. They're full of wonder and awe. But then right away, uh, you get also his opponents who come up. And so all of chapter two, and then what we're going to look at today with chapter three is sort of the, there's a number, a series of controversies, a series of questions about who do you, who are you? Why are you doing the things that you're doing? And why aren't you doing what we think you should be doing? Um, and so we come in and today at, sort of at the, the last of the Pharisees controversies. And then um, in the second part here, chapter three, one through six, we're going to get how Jesus puts the question to them. He kind of turns the table and, and they can't answer him. The conflict has been building throughout chapter two, and it grows in intensity, building up to today. We were talking before we started recording. If you break Mark into sections, you could put a, a bit of a break at the end of our text for today. What What's that break that we're going to see? Yeah, the at the end of or at three, one to six, like I was saying, there's in chapter two, let me just read off these questions. The Pharisees and the, the scribes ask Jesus a, a series of questions. And so the first one, um, who can forgive sins but God alone, right? Remember, Jesus heals the man who his friends lower uh, into the house on the, he's paralyzed and Jesus forgives his sins first and then heals him. So that's the first question. Who do you think you are? Um, you don't have that authority. Then the next question, um, why do you eat and drink with sinners and tax collectors? And then the next question, why do the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast, but yours don't? And then the question that we're going to talk about today, why are you doing this work on the Sabbath? And then um, in chapter three, Jesus gets to ask the question. So if you're just kind of following along and, and noting the questions that arise, I think that's why you, we would include this little, um, this little bit at the beginning of chapter three in with all those questions in chapter two. Um, it shifts from the Pharisees don't get to ask it anymore, but now it's the Lord himself who puts the question to them, and it kind of clinches the, the whole 
confrontation that's going on here. I think it does go to show how Jesus throughout remains in control of the situation, which I think is important as we go forward into Mark, particularly in the events of his passion, that as opponents are coming at him, he knows what he's doing, and and he knows when to escalate the conflict, if I can say it that way. Not that he escalates it, like takes it to them in a negative sense, like what happened in our public discourse today, but he knows what he's doing. He knows how to work the situation so that his hour, to use the language of John, his hour comes at the appointed time at the end of the gospel. Yeah, I think so. That's, uh, I think that's a helpful thing to see in the gospel of Mark. Um, I've said it this way before, Jesus is his own man, right? I don't know um, if you, Tim, you, I know that you and I both have little kids and there's these golden, um, the golden book series. Um, there's one called Crispin's Crispian. It's about a dog who's in control of himself. He's in, maybe some of our listeners know this one. If not, you should check it out. Um, but the dog is free. He doesn't have a master. He doesn't have an owner. And so he doesn't have to like, you know, do the things that other dogs do. He gets to make up his own day. And uh, the little boy, I don't know why I'm telling this story. The little boy goes along with him. Here's why I'm telling the story. Because what you see all through the gospel of Mark is that Jesus is no one's um, lapdog, right? He's not, he doesn't fit the criteria of the Pharisees. And he even doesn't, he'll, the Pharisee or his own disciples, excuse me, will have to kind of struggle with this to say, um, you are the Lord, you are the Christ, and you get to define what that means. We don't, you don't fit our preconceived notions, but we have to conform to you. Mark, particularly, there's some things that Jesus will do that are strange to us. We've already seen a little bit in terms of the way that he will tell people not to say anything. Later on, he'll do some things that just seem strange. One guest previously pointed out that when Jesus walks on water, Mark says that he intended to go past his disciples. And you see that in Jesus. He is not beholden to anyone else. He is his own man. He is doing that which is necessary to save sinners in the way that he knows is good and right. And so he lets the conflict come to him, and at the appointed times, he will bring it to those who are his opponents. And and we're even going to get to see here in the text some of Jesus' emotions brought out, how he actually feels about these things. You don't always get those notes about Jesus in the Gospels, but here we do get very explicitly what he feels concerning his opponents. And I think that's important for us to note when we get there, Again, just to see how he goes about what he's doing in bringing salvation of sinners. Yeah, the the I'll just kind of tie this in with one other theme that I know that will come up in your study here, which is um, why doesn't Jesus let? Well, you've probably already covered it. Why doesn't Jesus let the demons tell people who he is? And why doesn't he let? Um, there will be times where he heals a man or drives out a demon from him, and he says, "Now, don't tell anyone." And it's kind of like, well, Jesus, isn't that the whole point? Don't you want people to know who you are? But with the demons, especially, it's because he doesn't want, um, he he will reveal himself at the right time. Everything happens on his terms. And he doesn't let sort of, um, or he doesn't want people to take matters into their own hands because he's got his own timeline. He's got his own way of that. He's going to do this. And, and that brings conflict, right? I mean, everybody 
wants to be in charge. And you can especially see that with his dealings with the Pharisees, who were in some way, right, they weren't elected officials, but they were, they had authority. And Jesus is a, you know, he's not obeying them. Right. So let's take a look at the text that we've got today to see how these things come together. Again, the conflict is going to build to a climax in this part of the gospel according to St. Mark. We're starting in Mark chapter 2, verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. That's the text for today, Mark chapter 2, verse 23 through chapter 3, verse 6. Pastor Appled, both of these events happen on the Sabbath. So we need to talk at length, I would say, about what the Sabbath is, Old Testament background, why this becomes a conflict. Get us started talking about the Sabbath. Yeah, the Sabbath is a big deal, isn't it? Um, you can see that in in Jesus' own ministry. It's it's sometimes these the notes about time that occur are they seem to be kind of um, I don't know just details that we skim over time and place where he does things. But often the things that he was doing or the things that he was teaching, you get a little note. It happened on the Sabbath. So even in his own ministry, Jesus was very um, active. Uh, on the Sabbath. We know that that was the day that, I think this is in Luke's gospel, it was his custom. It was his regular, the Greek The Greek word is ethos. It was his uh, normal practice to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And that would have been fairly universal. I mean, I'm sure there were some, uh, some in Galilee and in Judea back then who, you know, stayed home and said, nah, it's not for me. But this was basically the equivalent, right, of going to church on Sunday. You know, if, if you just think of it that way, that's, it's the day for worship. So where does that get its start in the Old Testament? What's the Old Testament background? Yeah. Well, you have the the origin of it. It comes in uh, in the week of creation. So on the seventh day, this is in Genesis 2, on the seventh day, the Lord God rested from all the work that he had done. And so uh, the text there says uh, he set apart the seventh day and made it holy. Now, that you don't get a command right then and there. So it's part of creation. It's built into creation. Um, and it's the, the idea is that man, in the image of God, will model his life after God. Because he is God's image, he's going to do what God does. And so six days 
man will do his work, and on the seventh day he will rest with the Lord and in the Lord, just as the Lord did. Uh, but again, the commandment isn't given until, um, doesn't really come in until Mount Sinai, until you actually have the Ten Commandments. So I don't know, Tim, if you think this is a good distinction. It's kind of implicit in creation, but it's not explicit until um, the giving of the law. Yeah, I think that's a good thing to point out. And I think it, I think that helps with some of the, uh, if I can say it this way, the ambiguity concerning the Sabbath day. Because on the one hand, when the commands do come at Sinai, and then as they get laid out by <clears throat> Moses, there's some very strict regulations when it comes to what can and can't be done on the Sabbath, and some very severe penalties that are laid down yeah. for breaking the Sabbath. And yet, there's ambiguity. And here's the reason I say ambiguity. It's This is one reason, at least, and you might be able to add more. In Exodus 20, when the third, what we would number the third commandment concerning the Sabbath day is given, the reason that the Lord gives it there is because precisely what you laid out, that the Lord created everything in six days and rested on the seventh day, so he desires his people to rest on the seventh day. In Deuteronomy 5, when the Ten Commandments are repeated before the people enter the Promised Land, you don't get the same reasoning behind it. You get a different reasoning. There, the reason to rest on the Sabbath day is to remember what the Lord had done for his people in bringing them out of Egypt. I'm, I'm paraphrasing yeah. here. Right. But there's two different reasons for the Sabbath day, which I, I think begins to set the stage at least a little bit for what's going to happen in this text where Jesus takes some of those very strict laws, and I don't want to say interprets them loosely, but he doesn't interpret them the same way the Pharisees do, such that, and I guess here's my point with the Old Testament, there's more to the Sabbath day than not doing any work. I'll let you respond and take it from there. Yeah, I well, I think maybe some helpful, kit. Um, you bring up a good point. Exodus 20, the rationale for resting on the Sabbath day is because of God's work in creation. So it's a, there's a creation um, rationale. But in Deuteronomy 5, it is, if we can use this term, it is a redemption thing. And so it's not just, hey, sit around, don't get up, make sure you don't move, you know, more than 20 paces, which this became part of the problem with the Pharisees. We can talk about that in a minute. But the purpose was you rest from your work um, so that you would remember God's work. Um, be, and that's really where the Deuteronomy text is helpful to see this isn't just, hey, we all need a day off to recover strength so that we can be even more efficient next week, right? Um, God is not the owner of a factory who uh, gives us a day off just so that he can get more work out of us the other days of the week. He gives us the day off or he commands it so that we would, um, so that we would the text says, remember um, and receive. We would include that in as part of the remembrance. We would receive the gift of redemption, the benefits of our redemption. And that really, you can see that then in how the church talks about um, worship as, yes, it, you must worship the Lord. It's not optional for us. Um, but the, the, uh, the purpose of worship is to receive and to respond in thanksgiving to what we have received. When we talk about the commandments here in youth confirmation and adult confirmation at Grace, I'll, I'll often ask this question, particularly with the third commandment. Is the third commandment 
about what you do for God or is it about what he does for you? And as you said, there is the command to worship. This is something that the Lord tells us to do. But he tells us to do it so that he would give to us. I mean, thinking through the idea of rest, which is what the word Sabbath means, I rest on this day to remind to remind myself, to let God remind me, that it's not about what I do. I was not created by my own work, and I'm not saved by my own work. This is his work for me. And by taking a break physically, that reminds me of that greater reality of what God has done as my creator, as my redeemer. There's more to it than just taking a break. The Sabbath really is, and this is where Jesus will go, the Sabbath is a gift to man. So, Pastor Apple, then help us into, with, I mean, with that foundation, help us into the reason this becomes a conflict with Jesus and the Pharisees. Yeah, I think we could, we should, we should defend the Pharisees a little bit, sure. right, Tim? Maybe <laughs> um, they weren't, they weren't stupid, um, and they weren't, um, they were zealous. You can think of what how Paul how Paul talks about the Israelites um, in the Book of Romans. He said they had a zeal for the law, um, but it wasn't a zeal that produced righteousness. So the Pharisees are very zealous. They want to see God's law taken seriously. They want to see the commandments observed properly. And so all of their debates are about um, how how should we observe these things? What do we do? And really, um, with the Sabbath day, what don't we do? Okay, so when you take this, the command to do no work on the Sabbath day, and you you take that commandment and you say, well, how can we make sure that we don't violate the commandment? Okay, well, let's kind of put some safeguards in place, right? Um, you can kind of think of it like if you um, if you have, like, let's say you have a, a really valuable, I'm a baseball fan, Tim, let's say you have like a Babe Ruth autographed baseball, and you don't want your kids touching that thing, right? You could tell them, look, don't touch the baseball. But what if, what if you really wanted to protect it? Don't even touch the shelf that the ball is resting on. And in fact, it'd be better if you didn't touch the entire bookshelf where I have this thing. So that same kind of uh, motivation, I think, is what's going on in a lot of the rabbinical and the pharisaical um, rules that and the traditions that get built up. It's kind of like, well, we don't want to break the commandment. So if we don't even take, you know, 50 steps on the Sabbath day, if we limit the number of steps that we take, then we won't be doing any work on the Sabbath. And over time, those traditions become calcified they become like entrenched and expected and so even though the commandment doesn't specify you know thou shalt not you know take so many steps on the sabbath day in the mind of the pharisees that is required you must do that um, or you're going to be breaking the the commandment it's sometimes referred to as a fence around the law I think is sometimes yeah. what it'll be said, almost like, a, you know, you talk about the Babe Ruth autograph there. Imagine a big, or a cliff, just imagine a cliff. Where are you going to put the fence to block people from walking off the cliff? And the idea is, well, if I if I put it 10 feet from the cliff, uh, you know, someone could maybe be running too fast and, and just in the momentum throw himself over the cliff. But I if I put it, say, 50 feet away from the edge of the cliff or even 100 feet away, I know I'm not going to fall over the edge of the cliff. And I appreciate you defending the Pharisees, at least so that we can understand where they're coming from. 
particularly considering the experience of the exile for these people and, and what that tradition had done. They did not want to repeat what had happened that led to the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the first temple. And so there is this great sense of zeal that continues, you know, that's over 400, 500 years, that zeal continues into the Pharisees. And to at least understand where they're coming from, I think is an important thing. (laughs) There's plenty of things that I, I think, you know, if, if someone came and, and did certain things in our church on a Sunday morning, that we would probably say, hold on a second, what are you doing? And it's not all that different that the Pharisees are asking Jesus here. Yeah, the I'm glad you mentioned the exile because the in the book, I think it's in Nehemiah, and it's probably in Ezra too, very similar books, um, the, the breaking of the Sabbath is one of the reasons given for why the Lord sent them into exile. So the misuse of his name, and the breaking of the Sabbath are especially um, mentioned in Scripture. So I think our listeners have probably heard this before. Something very similar happens with the, the second commandment. You shall not misuse the name. Okay, how can we make sure we don't misuse it? Let's just never even say it. Because if we never say the name, then we'll never misuse the name. Okay, so with the Sabbath, similar thinking. How can we make sure that we don't violate the Sabbath day, just don't do anything at all, right? Just rest. Go. You can go to synagogue, but don't do anything else. And I would say, it, just to try to set this scene, it seems that they probably are on their way to synagogue. They're traveling. Jesus is with his disciples. Pharisees are with him, I think indicating, perhaps, that there's this crowd around him. They're all going toward the synagogue, maybe, because that's where they're going to end up in the second half of the text. But it's that plucking heads of grain that throws the Pharisees into this mode of questioning. I think it's interesting, uh, just to point it out, that the previous text dealt with the matter of feasting and fasting. Here again, we've got eating coming up in association with Jesus. This could not be called feasting by any means. They're just plucking heads (laughs) of grain for a snack. But even that is, is still too much for the Pharisees, and they ask... Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? This this question, Pastor Appold, often shows up on the lips of the Pharisees. What is lawful? What isn't lawful? And again, we give the Pharisees a bad rap sometimes, but what do you think? Is it a good question to ask or is it a bad question to ask? Well, it it uh, it reveals the um it reveals the heart, right? The questions that people ask are are always significant. Um, even if you you know how often do we say to him, well, you should ask the question this way, right? If you rephrase the question, you can sometimes help people see, okay, this question is coming from a bad motive or, a, or a, a motive that isn't quite right. So what is the motivation for their question? They want to see the law observed. And so oftentimes the, the Pharisees um, are sort of synonymous with legalists, right? Those who insist that by keeping the rules— It's not just that they want rules to be followed, because God wants that too, and God is not a legalist, but it's by keeping the rules that we will actually be saved or that we will, you know, there there is some ability by us to observe certain rules that will then earn or merit God's favor. That's really what legalism is. And the Pharisees um, have that uh, tendency certainly in their theology, and you can see it in what they're always asking about: Is this lawful? Is this lawful? Is this lawful? 
right? And and here they approach Jesus based on what his disciples are doing. Jesus gets judged by the actions of his disciples, but he defends them. And so we've got a couple minutes here before the break, Pastor Appold. Let's start into the answer that Jesus gives yeah. to the Pharisees. Yeah, it's it doesn't, and this is so typical of Jesus's teaching. I think the it's sort of like, well, did that really answer the question, right? Because <laughs> what he says is, what he says is, don't you remember um, what David did and how David? When he was running from Saul, now we'll compare these two if we have time. You, you just tell me how much time we have, okay, Tim? But the, the instance that he brings up is this time when King David is on the run from Saul and his life is threatened. And so you would, you would think here, that's a pretty extreme case, right? David is on the run from Saul. He's the anointed king, but Saul hates him and wants to kill him. And he's starving. He's on the run and he's starving to death. And so he goes in and he gets the, the holy bread from the priest. And he also then, I think he gets Goliath's sword in that um, account. Sort of fascinating. But um, you, you hear Jesus say that and you think, well, is that really the situation you're in? Is that what, and that is what Jesus is claiming, is that just as David did, and he quote unquote did what was unlawful, because only the priests were supposed to eat that bread, and David wasn't a priest, right? Um, so I can also do this, you know, this supposed work on the Sabbath day without breaking the law. And that correspondence is a little bit, it's not immediately obvious how the example of David gives Jesus the ability to do what is unlawful here. Agreed. There is some, there is some tension that's there. And the way Jesus asked the question, too, you know, haven't you read? Like, Don't you guys know the Old Testament? Which surely they did, and they've missed this point. So we're going to go ahead and take the break, and I'm going to let you resolve that cliffhanger for us on the other sure. side. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, January 22nd. We're studying Mark chapter 2, verse 23 through chapter 3, verse 6. We've got Pastor David Appold with us. He serves at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Paducah, Kentucky. Pastor Appold, prior to the break, we left with a bit of a cliffhanger. We're talking about the example that Jesus cites from the Old Testament, which can be found in 1 Samuel 21, where King David goes and he's running from Saul in threat of his life, terribly hungry, and he is given to eat bread that really should have been eaten only by priests. And Jesus gives this as his justification for doing what he is doing, for allowing his disciples to pluck these heads of grain. And you're saying, well, not sure what the correspondence is between what happened with David and what Jesus and his disciples are doing. Help us to resolve that. 
attention? Well, by by referencing King David, I think Jesus is again. There's there's the explicit statements that he's making, and then there's also what is implied, which isn't, you know, he doesn't say, "I am greater than David," but that is the implication here, right? So, what David could do, you know, quote unquote, violating the the laws, I can do. Well, why Jesus? It's not just because I'm in need, because here we would. You know, maybe they were very hungry, and so they were eating the grain, but it's not a matter of life and death for him, but it is a matter that he he is the one who gets to determine what is lawful and unlawful on the Sabbath day, right? It's almost like, um, you know, the who knows the law better? That In some ways, that's what the debates are between Jesus and the Pharisees. Um, you can you can think of the future questions he's going to get from them you know teacher what is the greatest commandment in the law they're they're sort of tempting him to have this debate and this argument and jesus's answers are i don't know they're in some cases they're very revealing and insightful but in other cases he just he says what everyone else would have said um but the point is you if you want to get into a debate with jesus um you're debating the lawgiver and you're never going to win the debate. <laughs> and so even if we can't see what the exact correspondence is, I think his answer is saying to them, um, I get to determine what what constitutes, you know, quote unquote, breaking the, the Sabbath commandment. Um, and that's because as David's son, as the, the true anointed one of God, um, he is he is given that status and that position. So it becomes less of a question about what is lawful in this case and more of the question of who is Jesus. Because as David was—I mean, you, you quoted it—well, I didn't really quote it, but referencing that verse from the Psalms, David's son and David's Lord both, that's who Jesus is. And so it's almost the argument from the lesser to the greater— that David yeah. did this in the Old Testament, and so David's son and Lord in the New, he's the one who gave the law in the first place. It, it becomes more about who Jesus is, his identity, and less about that specific action that's being taken. And I also think that how Jesus draws this together in verses 27 and 28 is quite instructive and gets back to some of the things we started off with. Jesus concludes this by saying, the Sabbath was made for man not man for the Sabbath, and then goes on to assert his authority by saying the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Take us into those two statements from Jesus. Yeah, so the um, in some ways it's like which is, which is the greater thing, the Sabbath day or man's existence? So God, God creates man, and he gives him the Sabbath day. I think we, we used that language earlier. The Sabbath is a gift for man. Um, to be to be enjoyed by man. I mean, it's kind of interesting, isn't it, that the commandment is don't do anything, and we struggle with that, like, oh, but I really want to, <laughs> you know. Um, this is, I think, very revealing of our sinful nature, which is, it just means whatever is told us, we don't like. You know, I don't want to do what I'm said, what someone else tells me to do. Um, because even here, the commandment is refrain from work, rest. Don't do anything. And people say, well, but I really I really need to mow the lawn or I really need to do these things, right? Um, but but here, the point that Jesus is making is that man is, is greater than the Sabbath. The Sabbath exists for man to use 
Um, and to use properly, it's he's not saying I can be willy-nilly with the Sabbath since I'm a man. Um, but he is saying as the son of man, as the son of David, it is my job, it is my authority, it's under my authority to to say and to do the things that are actually lawful. He uses the term for himself again, the son of man. This is now, I think, the second time Jesus refers to himself this way in the Gospel of Mark. The first was previously in this chapter where he heals the paralytic, and he says, so that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Here, the son of man's authority, lordship, is over the Sabbath. Those are two pretty big things for Jesus to claim authority over here in the span of one chapter, both the forgiveness of yeah. sins and the Sabbath. This is a, a pretty big claim Jesus is making. Yeah, think of where we started with our discussion of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is, um, is given by the Creator. And so if Jesus is saying, I, am, I have authority over the Sabbath— I think he's. We. It's not wrong for us to see there. Okay, he is making a claim on being the creator, and then also in Deuteronomy five, you pointed this out before the break, Tim, that there's also a uh, the redeemer gets to set the rules for the Sabbath. There's a redemption element to it, and so he's also saying, I am. I'm the one who created the whole world and set apart the seventh day for rest. I'm also the one who brought the people out from Egypt, um, the eternal son here. And so I also have authority over this Sabbath day. I think those two themes come together in the beginning of chapter three, the theme of Jesus being the son of man who has authority over the Sabbath as the one who creates and the one who redeems or restores, because he gets now to the synagogue. And at least this is the way I, I picture this. At the end of Mark 2, Jesus is traveling toward the synagogue with his disciples and the crowd. They have this conversation along the way because of the, the grain fields and his disciples plucking the heads of grain. They get to the synagogue, which is where they've been going, I would imagine, on the Sabbath, at the beginning of chapter 3. And now Jesus, as you laid out at the beginning for us, Jesus takes control the situation in a very overt way, he brings the question to the Pharisees who are looking for an opportunity to accuse him, Mark says. Jesus is going to approach a man with a withered hand, and he's going to now take the question to his opponents. Now their question becomes his question. He asks them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Take us into this scene at the beginning of chapter 3. Isn't it great how carefully everyone is watching Jesus? I mean, they're, they're paying attention to everything that he does. You know, from you, you do a good job pointing that out. Like, what is what's he doing as he's walking there? What's he going to do when he's there? It's not just his words that um, they're listening to, but they're watching everything that he does. And you think about sometimes this um, gets lost on us because we only read a couple verses at a time on a Sunday morning, right? Or, or in our other worship services. But just to, could you imagine Jesus constantly under the microscope, constantly being watched? Const and of course, he was perfect, right? So he never slipped up. But I think this is all part of his um, part of his humiliation is that he is scrutinized and everything that he does is being watched. I mean, he's always on point. Um, but here, the, the question that he puts to them is one that they can't answer. And I think, Tim, it's it's revealing because the answer seems so obvious, doesn't it? But they won't say what they know they should say. 
I mean, like, is it right it, just to even take it out of the Sabbath day? Is it right to do good or to do evil? Right. <laughs> well, of course, right? It's right to do good. But if Jesus asks it, all of a sudden the Pharisees, they're not going to answer because, and this is the whole point, it's because they are so jaded against Jesus that even what should be obvious is taken away from them. They can't bring themselves to admit it because what's what they would be admitting is that he's right and we should listen to him. Right, and, and they would admit to the authority that he has claimed in front of them, again, at the beginning of chapter 2, here just previously saying that he is the one who has authority over the Sabbath day. They would be admitting to that if they answer his question with the obvious answer. And the great, the great irony is that they end up, by the end of the text, doing precisely the thing that is not lawful to do on That's the Sabbath. Great. yes. Yes. You know, I mean, by the end of the text, what are they doing on the Sabbath? They're plotting They're how plotting, to destroy him. Yeah, plotting how to kill him. Because you're right, when Jesus asks that question, it's sort of like, well, okay, Jesus, that's a, a bit hyperbolic, right? I mean, this guy has a withered hand, but if you if you wait until tomorrow to heal him, you're not killing him. Um, but they, Jesus's point is, I have the opportunity right now to heal. And if I withhold that healing, why am I doing that? Is it, is it just because our traditions tell us we're not allowed to do that? Or is it because the commandment actually says, thou shalt not? And we mentioned this a little bit before, but here's where you get this, this great teaching on the Sabbath, which is not just, it's not just the refraining from work, right? So in all of the commandments, um, you can see, and our, our catechism is helpful on this, there is what is prohibited us to do, but then there's also the flip side of these things. So take take with the, the Sabbath day. Um, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, right? Um, what does this mean? Well, in the catechism's explanation, it just goes purely to what is, it doesn't say anything about what's prohibited. We should fear and love God so that we, um, well, it says that we shouldn't despise preaching in God's word. But the emphasis is on, what should we do? We should hold it sacred and gladly hear and learn it. And that's very much what Jesus is doing here, right? He's saying, um, stop. All you're, all you're doing is thinking about what's prohibited. Work, picking grain. You're, you're obsessed with picking grain, and now you don't want me to heal this guy who's in desperate need. Um, but this is the purpose of the Sabbath, which is to renew God's creation and to deliver the benefits of redemption. Um, that's where what we said before in Deuteronomy comes back in so powerfully. The, the Sabbath was given so that everyone in Israel could enjoy the benefits of the Exodus, slave and free alike, right? Male and female alike. And now with when Jesus comes, we've got not just the benefits of Exodus from Egypt, but he comes as the one who is going to set us free from sin, set us free from the corruption that's in the world because of sin. And that means he's, he's going to heal this guy um, who has this withered up hand on the Sabbath day. And that's the, that is the true meaning of the Sabbath. That's the reason that the Sabbath is given. I mean, what more appropriate, what more lawful thing could be done than for the Creator and the Redeemer to restore this man's hand on the Sabbath day. This is the most lawful thing that could have happened on the Sabbath, was for this man's hand to be healed 
by the creator, by the redeemer who's here in the flesh. And again, the, the fact that the Pharisees miss it is just terribly tragic and ironic, particularly in the way that they, they begin to plot to destroy him already at this point in Mark's gospel. Before we, before we go there, I mentioned this earlier. Jesus is angry and he is grieved here. As he and he's specifically at their hardness of heart. Delve into that a little bit for us, Pastor Apple. Yeah, the phrase the hardness of heart, you're gonna find this in different places, even among his own disciples. I think it's in chapter eight. Um, Jesus has a it's very similar um, text, actually. The same words may even be used with his wrath, his anger kind of breaking out, and he he's frustrated, he's <laughs> he's grieved. Um, by hardness of heart, wherever he finds it. So here, um, it's in the, in his enemies or those who are opposed to him. Um, but he also finds that same hardness of heart even among his own disciples, and it always brings this response from Jesus of um, of anger. And I think it's I think it's helpful to see that that is what the proper response to hardness of heart. Um, the proper response is sometimes. Um, that there is an anger that's called for. I'm not trying to give everybody license to to be angry, but um, hardness of heart is um, the great offense. That is the thing that um, really brings God's God's anger out. And it is a an anger that is mixed with grief. That those two things go together. He's not angry for the sake of being angry, but there is a grief that comes along with it that they will not believe him, that they continue to reject him, and that will only grow as the text continues. And I think for us, too, whenever we encounter that hardness of heart, particularly as those over whom anger may be very quick to exercise control and lead us into sin, that we do well to keep in mind this combination that we see in Jesus of anger and grief, that that, that grief would be in us when we encounter that hardness of heart as well. Yeah, that's a, I, I said a little bit ago, look at how carefully everyone's watching Jesus. And that would be, we should watch him just as carefully and look, look at how he, and the text is great because um, it takes you inside. You don't, you, you probably shouldn't try to psychologize Jesus all the time and figure out what's, what's he thinking, what's he feeling, but it does when the text gives it to you, you're not psychologizing. You're not just sort of trying to get into the mind of Christ because the text gives it to you. And so I think when when we experience um, not just people who are opposed to us, um, who we can't get along with at work, but those who are opposed to the gospel, um, the enemies of Christ, I think that Jesus's own example shows how Christians um, should think of their you know, spiritual enemies. It is, there is anger when you see hardness of heart, but you, it's a, it's a good thing to point out. There's also this grief that comes along with it. It's not just purely, I wish I could destroy these people, but it's that grief that comes in and says, um, he, he actually, I don't, this is too, I, I don't have the right words here this morning, Tim, but he feels bad for them. Right. Um, there is that sympathy and that grief that he wants to have mercy on them, but they refuse it. They refuse to. 
he desires not the death of the sinner. He desires all people yeah. to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And I think that's evident, quite evident there in verse 5 with those two emotions that Mark tells us about Jesus. One more note on the text specifically, and then I, I want to dig into a little bit of application concerning this Sabbath day for us today. At the end of the text that we've got, the Pharisees hold counsel with the Herodians, which uh, we've noted this earlier. The The disciples of the Pharisees and the disciples of John— were the ones that questioned Jesus' fact, fasting practices, which seemed like a bit of an odd couple. Here, even more so, for the Pharisees and the Herodians to be a, a bit of an odd couple, the Pharisees more concerned with religious matters, the Herodians probably more concerned with political matters, and yet in their common enemy, Jesus, they, they find cause to be friends. Yeah, the the different factions, the different groups among the Jews are always interesting to to look at and see when do they when do they put aside their differences and unite over a common enemy. So Herod, Herod and the Herodians are in power um, because they are put there by the Romans and they are supported by the Romans, and the Pharisees are very anti-Roman, and so they. They would not agree about most anything, but they do agree that Jesus is a threat to their plans and their purposes, and so they're going to come together and become friends here um, because they have a common enemy in Jesus. And it is, I think, worth noting how quickly this has happened in the gospel, according to Mark. We're just here at the very beginning of chapter 3, and already there's a plot to destroy Jesus. Yeah. I mean, he just yeah. he gets straight to the point. He's not— not leaving any any time to catch your breath. He just he just keeps going. The honeymoon doesn't last long. <laughs> that's does right. It? That's right. Yeah. Chapter one is the honeymoon, and the conflict starts in chapter two. And here at the beginning of chapter three, it's already yeah. it's already drawing to a, a a climax. Now, again, as we said earlier, Jesus is directing the events so that it reaches the climax at the proper time, which is coming later in the gospel according to Saint Mark. But we've got that that set already here. Yeah, I think maybe one way to put it for our listeners that's helpful, there there is a cost to everything Jesus does. And the cost is his own cross. Or another way that's often said, everything happens under the shadow of the cross. So even this healing of the man with the withered hand, there's going to be a cost to that. And the cost is Jesus' own death. You can see how his death, um, his atoning sacrifice actually comes back and touches everything that he does. It's all going to lead up to the cross, and then everything that he's done before the cross is going to now receive sort of a new impetus after the cross when he sends, you know, when he rises and then sends out his disciples. We've got about seven minutes here, Pastor Appold. As we think about this text and making use of it as Christians today, I think it's worth a bit of a conversation, and maybe the place to start is this. We've been talking about the third commandment, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, and yet you and I both serve congregations, and the majority of our listeners go to congregations that don't actually worship on the Sabbath day Saturday. We come together on Sunday, and yet when we have folks who aren't there regularly on that Sunday, we would have words of admonishment for them. How do how do we take this text and use it in a way that is evangelical according to the way of Jesus and not legalistic according to the way of the Pharisees? Yeah, the the Sabbath, um, the fourth commandment or the third commandment, <laughs> um, the third commandment has certainly um, undergone a shift from the old to the new. 
And you can see this too in like the, um, maybe a similar way to think of it is like with the prohibition of images, you know, um, thou shalt not make any graven image. Um, the rationale that's given for that is because you saw no images when I appeared at the top of Mount Sinai. I, I came, all you saw was fire and darkness. So you never saw me. So don't make an image of me. Well, why, why does the church permit paintings and, and um, crucifixes and things like that? Well, because God has, uh, God has actually entered into our flesh and he has shown himself. So we have actually seen his image. And so to make an image now is not to, uh, to, pro to project something onto him. He's actually given us the image. Now, with the Sabbath, I think you can see there's a similar shift that's occurred. Um, we don't regulate, we don't um, make, the, the meaning of the third commandment is no longer about Saturday and what you do on Saturday. Um, remember the, the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, refraining from work. Well, that's not what the third commandment means for the church. What it means for us is um, to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. There should be a holy day in each of our lives. And how, how is anything kept holy? It's not simply a matter of refraining from the common, from common work, but you have to have the holy work of God being done in your heart, in your mind. And that happens through, this is where you get the, the means of grace and the Lutheran emphasis is always on, um, you know, we, thou shalt not despise preaching and the word of God. What does that have to do with the Sabbath day? Well, that's what makes the day holy. And whether that happens on Saturday or Sunday or Monday is kind of beside the point. The main point is that that the means of grace must be used by Christians. I think that's what we would say. That's what the, the, the Sabbath command means for us. If I can tie that into the text, I think the place we would look would be that last verse of chapter 2, where Jesus says, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And so to properly keep the Sabbath day is not about how many steps you take or how many heads of grain you pluck or what work you do, but whether or not you are with the Son of Man on the Sabbath, are you with Jesus on the Sabbath? And when you're with Jesus, then you are keeping the Sabbath. And how are you with Jesus? Well, that's where the means of grace come in. You're, you're with Jesus in those places where he has promised to be, in the preaching of his word, in the receiving of the sacrament of his body and his blood, in his baptismal promise. That is where Jesus has promised to be. And so when you are there with him, you are keeping the Sabbath, regardless of the day that that happens to take place. I think we would say that right now, as we are discussing the scriptures, this is a keeping of the Sabbath, that we are being made holy by the Lord who has created us and redeemed us because we are receiving him in his word. Now, at the same time, uh, we, we should be careful here. We are talking about this, Pastor Appold. But it is good for Christians to have a particular time and place to do these yeah. things. This is why I defended the Pharisees earlier. That's right. <laughs> it's, it's not just because I am a Pharisee, but um, it is because there is there is wisdom to it, right? So there is actually wisdom, and it's not just um, you know old fa being old fashioned, but there actually is tremendous wisdom to saying there's going to be a day 
in the week. And it's going to be Sunday because that's when Jesus rose from the dead. That's when the Holy Spirit came on Pentecost, even though it's not explicitly commanded. Um, those things shape the way that I think about my time and my own life. And so my life um, revolves around Jesus's life, not the other way around. So I don't squeeze in, um, you know, Jesus into my week where he fits, but I make my, my week fit around him. Of course, there's going to be exceptions to this. Of course, there's going to be times where um, I, I really cannot get to church on Sunday. Um, and there may even be, this is one of the hardest parts, is when uh, a person is must work on the Sabbath, to, must do the common things. Um, and that's hard. I've, I've talked with some of my own congregation members who they feel it because they, they feel and they know that the week is thrown off when it doesn't begin in the Lord's house. Um, so I, have I danced around it here uh, sufficiently <laughs> for you, Tim? I think I would want to point out that, yes, we don't want to become legalistic about it, but I think that we do as Christians want to say um, there is wisdom to refraining from all the common work, and especially when um, so much of our time and energy can is so easily diverted and sucked away into things that are, are just really are not holy. Um, I don't just mean hobbies and watching sports on Sunday, but I mean, you just, the end, I call it the endless scroll. That is so, before you know it, hours slip away and nothing fruitful has been thought about, meditated on, um, and it, it actually um, has the opposite effect of instead of sanctifying us, it only um, desanctifies us. Yeah, the, the, there, there's so much that we could say. The thing about we need to gather together as Christians, this is a command that we receive. I mean, Hebrews chapter 10 is perhaps the classic passage there that we should not give up meeting together. We need to gather, and for the sake of having a time and a place, we, we do set one. You mentioned at the very beginning, I think, Jesus custom of being in the synagogue on Sabbath. There is wisdom in that, and we should not forsake that wisdom, all the while not become legalistic and recognize what is truly making us holy and where true rest is to be found. And I I think that that's one of the beautiful things about Christian worship and a proper understanding of the Sabbath is that in the midst of all these distractions that we think will give us rest but never fully do, our Lord points us to himself where we truly can have rest. I'll let you have one more minute to wrap things up for us, Pastor Appled. Yeah, the, the Sabbath day for us has become the Lord's day, and it's all about him. Um, he is our rest. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. And the, the sanctifying of that day comes because Jesus is present through his word, through the preaching of his word, and um, the gift of his body and blood. And so um, if you want to do good on the Sabbath day, um, make your day start with him. Um, and, and make it Sunday, find a faithful church where um, Christ is present and his gifts are given out. Pastor David Appold is the pastor at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Paducah, Kentucky, helping us this morning with Mark chapter 2, verse 23 through chapter 3, verse 6. Pastor Appold, thanks for being our guest today. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, the day of rest, rest that is found in him in the hearing of his word. What a joy it is to find our rest in the Savior. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.